Good morning. It's good to see everybody here. We had a good time yesterday at Kevin's wedding, and it was kind of like old home week. Saw a lot of former TCFers there, and uh, it was uh, uh, just a really joyous event. And uh, it was fun, again, to see the wedding meister at work. Where did he go? He left. He's, he's probably... Anyway, Jim, Jim, Jim Grinnell is the best when it comes to doing weddings. He does a marvelous job with weddings. So let me start this morning with a story of an old man from the wilds of southeast Oklahoma, hardly ever been in a little town or let alone a big city, kind of lived primitively in his place. So he comes to the big city for the first time, and he's in a building waiting with uh, one of his children, and uh, his wife is nearby as well, and he sees this old, kind of tired, frail woman walk into this elevator, and the door closes, and a few seconds later, the door opens again, and out walks this young, beautiful woman. And he turns to his son, and he says, son, go get your mother. (laughs) Don't we wish change was that easy, or that quick, huh? doesn't happen that way, does it? But Scripture really has quite a bit to say about change, and our primary text today is about change. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to read at the outset here, verse 18. You'll keep your finger in, the, in your uh, Bible there, too, because we'll be spending a lot of time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. But for now, we're going to start with this verse. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the impetus we see in so many places in your word to change and to be changed into the image and likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as we consider this theme this morning, Guide us. May your word be illuminated to our hearts and to our spirits, Father. And may your word indeed be living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. As we look into your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. We see in this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the reality of what happens to a believer in Christ after he or she is saved. It's a wonderful gospel truth. That the believer in Christ is transformed, is shaped, is remade, is morphed, if you will, into the image and likeness of Christ. But there are some key things that are part and parcel of this reality, which are very important for us to understand and truly make all the difference in how we are, in fact, morphed into the image of God. That's what we want to explore this morning. We're studying 2 Corinthians in house church, and we spent our meeting this week looking at the verses preceding our primary text this morning, as well as at this verse. And we saw how critical they are to really getting this idea of changing into the image of God, into our spirits. You see, apart from Christ, it's our tendency to think that we are completely responsible for changing ourselves. But in Christ, it's kind of a chicken and egg discussion. Which comes first? Do we initiate and empower and sustain our own change? Or does God give us, as a measure of his grace, the ability to change? Now, the world seems to think that it's as simple as making a decision, that we have the innate ability to change ourselves. Don't get me wrong here. Decisions are important. 
as we'll see as we move along this morning. But can we really just decide to change? One writer quotes Gandhi as saying, be the change that you want to see in this world. And then this writer tells us that this quote is a powerful call to take responsibility for your life. Gandhi tells us in order for us to see changes in the world, we are the ones who have to actively create them by ourselves. We are the ones who need to change first, nobody and nothing else. It's said we need to be responsible for ourselves and our environment and invoke the positive change that we desire most. That is strength. And it's empowering because we are in control. We are the ones that make it happen. The late founder and visionary of Apple computers, Steve Jobs, is quoted as saying, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Well, how many of you see that there are several problems with some of this kind of thinking? And they are clearly illustrated in Scripture. Now, it sounds good at first blush that we need to be responsible for changing ourselves. Responsibility is a good thing, and decisions are important. But Scripture says we cannot do it apart from Christ. Romans 6 tells us that we were, before we were in Christ, slaves to sin. Now in Christ, we are freed from slavery to sin, and we are, for the first time in our lives, capable of making good choices. We celebrated some of these truths even in our worship songs this morning. Yet we are still unable to make these good choices, to make these changes apart from His grace at work, present and active in our lives. You know what? This may surprise some of you. I hope it doesn't. But we do forget it. The gospel's not just for the unsaved, but it's for the saved. Let me say that again. The gospel's not just for those who are not saved, for those who are not in Christ, but it's for those who are in Christ, for the saved. And the problem with the follow-your-heart advice from Steve Jobs is also addressed in Scripture. You hear the idea that we should follow our heart in many different ways in our culture. You see it all the time in movies. You see it in books. You see it constantly. I remember the story of a man and a woman in this church more than 30 years ago, and they were in an adulterous relationship. When it became known that they were both cheating on their respective spouses, the elders met with both of them, and they called them to repentance and to forsake their sin. And the woman reportedly said, speaking of her fellow cheater, but in my heart, I know I love him. I just know I love him in my heart. And Bill Sanders, TCF's first pastor, said to her, quoting Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? So if we just follow our hearts, we're following deceit, we're following spiritual sickness, and we are doomed to sin. The whole of Scripture is very clear about what kind of people we really are, and how completely unable to save ourselves, or even after we are saved, how completely unable we are to change ourselves. We need something or someone outside of ourselves to change us. In the original language, the word transformed in this passage is the Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. What happens in metamorphosis? Well, for those of you who, it's been a few years since you've had science, let's remind you of some of these uh, dictionary definitions. Metamorphosis is a transformation, as by magic or sorcery. 
The second definition, a marked change in appearance, character, condition, or function. And in biology, metamorphosis is a change in the form and often habits of an animal during normal development after the embryonic stage. Metamorphosis includes in insects the transformation of a maggot into an adult fly. Think about that image for a minute. Let's not. And a caterpillar into a butterfly. That's a better image to think about, isn't it? And in amphibians, the changing of a tadpole into a frog. So what can we draw from the natural world explanation of metamorphosis that might be helpful for us this morning as we move forward? Well, first of all, no magic or sorcery. But real change, real morphing in the life of a believer is, in fact, something supernatural, as we're beginning to see as we look at this passage. And then we see the definition, the second definition, a marked change in appearance, character, condition, or function. Now we're getting a little bit closer, aren't we? Closer still to an understanding of biblical transformation character, for example. That sounds like something we're after when it comes to change, a change in our character, aren't we? But even the biology definition of metamorphosis is helpful. A change in the form and often habits of an animal during normal development after the embryonic stage. So we're babes in Christ, and as we grow, our habits change, don't they? What does Paul tell us about our new life in Christ? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what happens when we are saved is we are changed, and we are beginning to be changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. We're changed from the walking dead. We're changed from being spiritual zombies bent on sin into those with eternal life, with changed hearts, no longer chasing sin, or in the case of zombies, chasing brains. This is a more startling and amazing change than we see when we see a caterpillar who's crawling along the ground and then crawling up onto a branch and eventually morphing into a butterfly, able to fly high above the ground. And in the process, we are changed into the image and likeness of God. We are equipped by His Spirit to attain to those attributes of God that are communicable. In other words, those things such as His love, His grace, His mercy, the fruit of the Spirit. The Word of God tells us clearly we can do and grow in these things, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, from glory to glory. Or some versions say, with ever-increasing glory. It's a process, right? It's like metamorphosis, and it's an amazing process. But here's the thing. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen without outside intervention. And it's clearly not just our decision to change that uh, change brings about. We need, we absolutely require something outside of ourselves. Anybody know Isaac Newton's first law of motion? Everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed on it. Let's look at the word transformation. It's another way to say morphed as it applies to another scientific field, molecular biology. Now hang in there with me for a minute here because I'm going to use a scientific definition with a lot of big fancy words that I think is going to help us get where we want to go this morning. 
Here it is. In molecular biology, transformation is the genetic alteration of a cell resulting from the direct uptake, incorporation, and expression of exogenous genetic material from its surroundings and taken up through the cell membrane. Everybody got that? Of course not. So let's look at the meaning of these words. Some of you scientists get it. James is out there shaking his head. Yeah, I get that. And Beth is saying, oh, yeah, nothing to, nothing to it. For the rest of us dummies, let's work at this. We're beginning to understand transformation, right? Transformation means essentially change. And usually it means radical change. Well, how about genetic alteration? Well, alteration is another kind of change. But genetic means at the most basic level of our human existence. Now, think about this. Our genes are what make up our being. Our genes, at least in some respect, are our destiny. If my genes say I'll have dark hair, I'll have dark hair. If they say I'm prone to heart disease, well, then I'm going to be prone to heart disease. And my genes do, in fact, say that. That's one reason I'm a diligent exerciser, because I can't control my genes. But I can have a measure of control over other things that impact my heart health, but I can't change or control my genes. However, in molecular biology, change means altering the genes. How is this done? By something outside the genes. It has to be something outside. The genes cannot change themselves, but, and here's where we have to define some more terms, Genes can apparently be changed by, according to this definition, the direct uptake, incorporation, and expression of exogenous genetic material. Now, exogenous means simply outside the original gene. That's a scientifically accurate way of saying that something outside the gene must somehow be incorporated into it. Different genes must somehow be put into that original gene that gene that you want to change. And when you do that, there's a transformation that takes place. But it's not because the original gene said, hey, I'm going to change. I'm going to be something different. It's because something from outside it enabled it to change. And the new genes introduced into the old one carry with them new features and capabilities and functions. Now we're getting somewhere with a spiritual application. Our spiritual genes make us sick and sinful. It's the doctrine of original sin, right? Only an injection of God's genetic material into our hearts can change us. And God set us a standard. He gave us a model of what sinlessness or holiness looks like. How did he do that? He gave us the law. He gave us the law. He gave us the Ten Commandments. Now this is where we have to look at the context of our primary text this morning. We started by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Our primary text, let me read that again. It's on your bulletin cover. If you have your Bibles open, you can read it with me again. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There are some references in this verse to what comes before. So let's take a few minutes to look at those things. Paul starts this whole section by saying some surprising things about the law. In verses 5 and 6, for example, of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes this, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the letter, as Paul is telling us here, referring to the law, kills. And then in verse 7, he again references the law. He calls it the ministry of death. In verse 9, again writing about the law, Paul calls it the ministry of condemnation. Now think about this for a second. If you knew nothing else about Scripture and you just saw these verses all by themselves, you might be inclined to think after reading these things that the law, the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, must be a very bad thing, right? After all, Paul says it kills. He says it's the ministry of death. He says it's the ministry of condemnation. But here's a perfect example of why we cannot build doctrine on just one verse or even one short passage of Scripture. Because the Word of God also tells us in the words of Jesus himself, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We also read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now here's Paul writing about the Scriptures, and Paul knew that the Old Testament, what we consider to be the Old Testament, were part of the Scriptures, right? Well, Jesus himself also constantly referred to and quoted what we consider to be the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was Scripture and thus authoritative. The Old Testament included what? The law and the prophets. If Jesus affirmed these things, then how can they be bad? No, the law representing the Old Covenant and the grace of God representing the New Covenant are both, they are both part of the great plan of salvation of our great and mighty God. It's just that they serve entirely different purposes as part of this one great plan. And what the Apostle Paul does here in this letter to the church in Corinth is not to say that the law isn't good or important, but he compares the greatness, the glory of that old covenant, the law, to the new covenant. So the purpose of the law in the Old Covenant is demand, it's exhortation. The purpose of the law is to point us to our need for redemption. The law tells us how to be holy, but it cannot provide the means, the equipping for us to be holy. Because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, as we just read a moment ago from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Because we all fall short of God's glory as we read in the Bible Bowl Kids Know the A-verse, Romans 3.23. So the law gives us the destination, and the law gives us a very rudimentary roadmap, but it doesn't give us the vehicle to get where we need to go. The law reveals sin, but it's powerless to remove it. It points to righteousness, but can't produce it. It shows us what godliness is, but it cannot make us godly. The law, apart from the gospel, can only crush. It cannot cure. But the gospel is the new covenant. 
And glory to God, the gospel is the cure for our sin problem. The gospel is the good news of our salvation. And as a result of our salvation, the Holy Spirit living inside of us can and does equip us for change. It equips us for transformation, for being morphed into God's image. So Paul writes, and here we're going to back up a little bit. If you still have your finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to go back to verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter here. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, here we get to our key verse here, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We see several key things revealed here. First of all, we see Paul state clearly that the old covenant was already beginning to pass away and to fade from the moment God transformed Moses' face into one of shining glory. It was never meant to last into eternity. Paul explains this in verse 13. Remember in Exodus, when Moses came down from the mountain after, the God, after God had given him the Ten Commandments, right? Moses had seen God and his face was shining brightly with God's reflected glory. It was kind of like a God sunburn, huh? But in verse 13, Paul tells us that it was already being brought to an end. It was never meant to last into eternity. That's because the old covenant's primary purpose was to point to Christ in the new covenant, to our absolute need for him. We also see that even our ability to understand this only comes when we are drawn by the Holy Spirit into a relationship with Christ. We see in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the veil remains unlifted unless through Christ it is taken away. We are so enslaved to sin that without Christ we cannot even begin to see the truth. We see then in verse 16, we see this idea reiterated where Paul writes, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then we see another reason why the new covenant is so much more glorious than the old. Freedom. Freedom. We all love that word, don't we? Free is the best word in advertising, right? When you see free, you're attracted to it. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So even though the context doesn't specify freedom from what or to do what, we can clearly see from this and other passages that there are many kinds of freedom that come with our salvation in Christ and the presence of His Holy Spirit. First of all, and this is directly related to the context of the passage we're looking at, we see that uh, there's freedom from the crushing power of the Old Covenant. 
that told us what we need to do to be holy but didn't provide us the power to be holy. Now as believers in Christ, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit that lives inside us to be free from sin. We have freedom also from condemnation. That's another thing the Old Covenant illustrated. In other words, the Old Covenant said to us, do this and you will live. But it didn't give us the power. We couldn't do what it said. And what did that leave us? Condemnation. Have you ever looked at the Ten Commandments and seen your sin there? If we're honest with ourselves, we really, most of us can't really get past the first one. Exodus 20, chapter 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, we're telling Moses' story in Bible Bowl this semester, and one of the things we told the kids was that the gods, the little g gods, are idols. Not the golden calf kind of idol. No one has those around. Anybody have a golden calf in their house? No, we told the Bible bowlers that idols are anything or anyone that's more important than God in our lives. You know, it's a real challenge to teach Bible Bowl kids because you have to take these concepts and you have to say them in a way that they can understand. Well, I can get that. Anything or anyone that's more important than God in my life. Those are the things we worship. Whether we literally bow down to them or raise our hands to them in worship or not, those are the things we worship. Now that, it's a little closer to home, doesn't it? That's more relatable to us than the golden calf. That means that, here's the sad part, even good things, even good things can be idols. My wife, my job, my kids. I'm supposed to love my wife and my kids, right? It's good if we love our jobs, my money, my things. So I can't even get past the first commandment without in the honesty of my own heart before God realizing that I've broken it, that I'm probably breaking it still and probably will break it again, even for a moment. You know what? When you think about it and you just leave it right there, that's a crushing burden. That is a crushing burden. That's condemnation. That reveals and points to my absolute helplessness because God knows I try, right? I sure try, but thanks be to God, now we live under grace and in Christ. And as Paul wrote to the Romans, we read in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, if that isn't a wonderful source of freedom for you and for me, then I don't know what is what great freedom that truth brings us another freedom we noted as we discussed this verse in our house church this week is that we now in Christ have the freedom to approach God directly to use Paul's analogy of the veil in this passage in just a little bit different way we remembered that at the moment Jesus died what happened the curtain the veil that separated the people from the Holy of Holies in the temple of Jerusalem was torn in two. 
And what did that do? What did that symbolize? That symbolized that that gives all of us a new freedom, a new freedom to approach God with only Jesus as our mediator. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near to God. We can draw near to God in full assurance. We have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Anybody struggle with their conscience? We can have our hearts sprinkled clean by just taking that directly to Jesus who mediates before the Father for us. That's freedom. That's freedom. Now, all this that we've just spent the last several minutes talking about, all this is the background for the final verse in this chapter. So let's read it again from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now imagine for a minute that you're looking in a mirror. And as you look into the mirror, you see yourself changing. Maybe kind of like the little girl in this video. You see yourself growing older. You see yourself growing more beautiful in Christ. You see yourself reflecting His glory. But as this growth continues, you see something even more amazing. You begin to see the glory of the Lord in your face. And maybe you see yourself more and more over time resembling the Lord Jesus Christ. You're being morphed. You're being changed into His image from glory to glory, a constant, lifelong process in Christ. You know what? We're kind of like the duck hunter who was hunting with his friends in the wide-open, barren spaces in Georgia. And then far away on the horizon, this story could also be in Oklahoma because we'll recognize some of the facts in here. He noticed there was a cloud of smoke, and soon he could hear the sound of crackling, and pretty soon the wind made him realize, you know, there's a brush fire, and it's coming my way. Some of you have experienced that. I know Margot feared for her house just a few weeks ago as a brush fire uh, approached her. And he realized it was coming so fast that there's no way he could outrun it. So he looked through his pockets and his backpack, and he found a book of matches, and he lighted this match, and he lit a small fire around himself and around his buddy. And soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth. All the ground around them was burned. And they covered their mouths and their handkerchiefs, and they braced themselves, and the fire came near, and it swept over them, but they were unhurt, not even touched. The fire would not burn the place where fire had already burned. Now, I believe this is a great analogy. And the point here is that the law is like a brush fire that takes no prisoners. It cannot be escaped or extinguished or circumvented. But if we stand in the burned-over place where the law has already done its worst, we will not get hurt. Its power has not been nullified, nor has its necessity and authority been denied. 
Yet because of where we are standing, not a hair on our heads will be singed. The death of Christ is the burned-over place. There we huddle, believing yet relieved, hardly believing yet relieved. Christ's death has disarmed the law, and where there was once guilt, now all that remains is gratitude. Isn't that a beautiful analogy of where we can stand in Christ? And it's from that place of gratitude and standing in that place of protection from the consequences of the fire of sin that the law reveals that God begins to transform us. Our hearts change. Our hearts change, resulting in changed attitudes and changed behaviors. We don't look the same as we used to look. Aren't you glad God doesn't just save us and leave us where he found us? I am. We're morphing into the image and likeness of God. But even though this is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit, after all, Paul tells us in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 that this comes from the Lord, and he tells us the veil is only removed in Christ in verse 14. So what does that mean for us as believers? Does that mean that we as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we just kind of sit back and say, okay, here I am, Lord, change me. Is that what we do? Think of it this way. God has given us what the reformers call means of grace. Today we might call these things spiritual disciplines. But there's a danger here because the word discipline might incline us to think that we're more than just the recipients, leading us to think that we can somehow earn our justification and even our sanctification. But let's look for a moment at an illustration that I found helpful. Hopefully you will too. If I turn on a light switch, what happens? The light comes on, but I'm not generating the electricity. If I turn on a faucet, the water flows, but I'm not gathering the water to bring it to my home. There's no electricity, there's no water, there's no light without someone else providing it. But I still have to turn on the switch, and I still have to turn on the faucet. Now, this is an imperfect illustration, but it is an illustration of God's grace for growth and change in our lives. We don't control the supply, and we can't provide it ourselves. But God has given us the switch to connect to that source of electricity. He's given us the pipes to open to the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he's given us these means of grace, his regular, his ordinary channels to dispense his grace and his molding and shaping influence in our lives. Now, such practices, writes David Mathis, are not fancy or highfalutin. They are the stuff of everyday basic Christianity, unimpressively mundane, but spectacularly potent by the Spirit. I like that idea. They're unimpressively mundane. Aren't the spiritual disciplines? How many times have we heard it from this pulpit? From every elder here, at least 50 times. We've heard something about the spiritual discipline. They are unimpressively mundane by themselves, but they are spectacularly potent, powerful by the Spirit. While there's no final and complete list of such spiritual disciplines, the long tally of helpful habits can be clustered into three big groups. Hearing God's voice, having God's ear, and being with God's people. Or simply, word, prayer, fellowship. Wow, that's pretty simple, isn't it? But it's powerful. It's powerful. These are the things that we need to do to act. They're, they're, they're God's means of grace. He's given them to us. They are gifts 
of his grace just as much as his grace itself is. So we are transformed by God and by God alone. We read in 1 Peter 5.10 where he is called the God of all grace. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How do we get mature in Christ? We grow, we're transformed, we're changed. For this I toil, struggling with what? All His energy that He powerfully works within me. So again, we see God's grace is what gives us the ability to do these things. It's God's energy. It's God's power. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we just stop there, we can go right back to that idea that we work it out on our own, don't we? But then we read in verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So transformation, morphing into the image of Christ is God's job. He does it. We can only access his means of grace to cooperate the process. And I don't know about cooperate with that process. I don't know about you. I want to cooperate with that process. I want to be there and flip on that light switch and have the power of God to change me into his image flow on just as easily I want to access those means of grace because God's given them to me in my life. We struggle with all his energy that works in me, Paul told the Colossians. It is God who works in me and even gives me the will to do the good works that he prepares for me to do, we read in Philippians. Think about this. It's only in that burned-over circle of safety in his grace with gratitude that God has in his mercy protected us from the scorching fire of sin. It's only in that place that we can be morphed, we can be changed, we can be transformed into his image. And it's a lifelong process. It says from glory to glory. We are changed from one degree of glory to the other. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful, Father, that that is one of the means of grace that you have given us to change. And Father, we're grateful for that burned-over place where we can stand free from condemnation, where we have free access to the very throne room of God for our prayers and our petitions, where we have freedom from the crushing burden of a law that we cannot possibly uh, meet, we cannot possibly fulfill, Lord, on our own. We're grateful as we stand in that burned-over place, Lord, that you give us the means of grace to connect with you, to find your grace for change, Lord. So that's our heart today, Lord, that you would help us to bring real change, that you would initiate, that you would empower, you would equip us to change more and more into the image and likeness of God, Lord, and that we would be like the uh, people that Paul described in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Lord, that as we look in a spiritual mirror and see ourselves, we would be reflecting your glory. We have no glory of our own, Lord, We have no glory of our own, but it's our heart and our desire to reflect the glory of God, knowing, Father, that as we do that more and more, we are indeed being changed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, morphed into your image, Lord. May that be so for each of us, Lord. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.